live from the summit in Orlando, Florida, the Corps presents a very special sales training boot camp with Coach Lou Holtz. Please remember that due to contractual obligations, duplication and redistribution of this program is strictly prohibited. Well, around here, we believe that you should learn from the best. And I'm honored today to introduce you the most successful football coach who's going to share his story. I had the privilege of having dinner with Coach Holtz and his lovely wife, Beth. Um, he's a resident here in Central Florida, and he still inspires and influences people all over the world. Uh, in the 26 years, his reputation has been to turn pretenders into contenders. He's also known as a demanding disciplinarian and someone who relishes hard work. He's an avid golfer and continues to share his wisdom and change lives. Ladies and gentlemen, please stand and give a warm solvent welcome to Coach Holtz. Thank you. Thank you. I, uh, I get very nervous when people stand up when I'm introduced. I thought you were getting up to leave. So, but I am delighted to be here, and I want to congratulate you on the tremendous success you've had. I know we have difficulties, we have problems, we have challenges. And I'm not going to preach to you, and I'm not going to lecture to you. I don't stand behind a podium. I don't read from notes. I just try to speak from my heart. I also realize 10% of you won't remember 10% of what is said 10 minutes after I said it. But I hope for the next hour I can share my thoughts and ideas. I know many of you have heard me speak. I cannot change the philosophy the things I'm going to talk about are things I believe, things I've done, things that have worked. I'm not going to talk about something I read about or heard about. These are things I believe. And I think, first of all, it's important for you to understand who Lou Holtz is not. I'm not a singer. I'm not a dancer. I'm not an entertainer. I'm not an intellect. When I graduated from high school, I was in the lower third of my high school class. If it was not for people like me, there could have been no upper half of the class. So I'm just a simple individual. I am proud to say I was in the upper half of the lower third of my class, though. Somebody said, well, you've written three New York Times, New York Times best-selling books. That is true. You're looking at one of the few people in this world who's written more books than he has read. And I, I bring this up to you because I'm just a simple individual and there's nothing complicated. People say, you must be a good athlete. I'm not. I love golf. I don't get a chance to play much anymore. But I belonged to Bay Hill for many years, and one day I went over there, was paired with the men's group. I was paired with Arnold Palmer. I was so nervous. I played so badly. We lost money. We went in the locker room after I felt bad, badly. I said, gee, Arnie, I'm sorry I never played that bad before. He said, oh, you played before, have you? So... <laughs> The reason I bring this up, I mean, I'm just a simple individual. And when I went to Notre Dame, Father Joyce said, Coach, there are certain things at Notre Dame are not negotiable. Don't think you're going to come here and change them. I said, what are they? He said, we don't take transfers. We don't redshirt. We don't have an athletic dorm. We don't have an athletic training table. We don't have good football facilities. We don't even want to improve them. Because we don't want somebody to come here because of the weight room. We want somebody to come here because of our chemistry department. He said, we're going to play the most difficult schedule we can find. We expect to win. We aren't going to change that. He said, the other thing that we aren't going to change is we have a policy at Notre Dame. The head football coach at Notre Dame is not allowed to make more than the president of Notre Dame. And the president of Notre Dame is a priest that took the vow of poverty. Now, <laughs> he didn't say anything that would keep us from winning. 
He didn't say you could only play with eight and everybody else had 11. What he said, there's going to be problems, there's going to be challenges, there's going to be obstacles in everything we do. Then Father Hesburgh said, I can name you the head coach of Notre Dame. I can announce to the world you're the head coach of Notre Dame. I can give you that title. He said, I cannot announce to the world you're the leader of the football team. You're the coach. Titles come from above. He said, leaders come from below. He said, the people that are leaders will be determined by the people below you. And what makes a leader? You know, there's certain things I think make a leader. Number one, you have to have a vision where you want to go. You have to have a vision. This is where we want to take the organization. I went to Notre Dame when Miami had beaten us 58 to 7. I had a vision where we wanted to take Notre Dame and make them one of the best football programs in the entire country. That was my vision. Without a vision, you have nothing. The second thing you have to have, you have to have a plan of how you're going to get there. We had a plan how we were going to become one of the best in the country. And the third thing that a leader does, he leads by example. And the fourth thing, you have to hold people accountable for the choices they make. And the fifth thing that a leader does, he makes sure everybody in the organization understands what are your core values. What holds the country together? What holds the family together? What holds the business together? What holds the team together? Core values. You don't have to like one another. don't have to like the same music. But you must share the same core values. My wife and I have been married together 104 years. 52 apiece, but together we've been married because we share the same core values. We're opposites night and day. She said opposites attract and then attack. And I want to pause here and say to you sincerely, if you want some great advice, listen to your spouse. If nobody knows you any better, loves you any more, wants to see you succeed anymore, be any more honest with you. And my wife, not only somebody loved dearly, she's my best friend. So I said, we've been married 52 years. And two years ago, I was with a friend on a golf course. I said, 50 years of marriage to my best friend. He said, your wife's not your best friend. I said, you're wrong. My wife's my best friend. He said, you're wrong. He said, your dog is. I said, what do you mean? He said, well, I'll try this. Lock your dog and your wife in the trunk of the car. Come back in an hour and see which one's happy to see you. <laughs> so, maybe. But my wife left me a note not long ago. I traveled too much. She said, Lou, I can't please everybody in the world, so I'm going to stop trying. And I'm going to focus on pleasing one person a day. Today's not your day, and tomorrow doesn't look real promising either. So, But there are a lot of things that I don't understand. I don't understand how black cow eats green grass, produces white milk and yellow cheese. I don't understand why they sell hot dogs in packages of eight and hot dog buns in packages of six. I don't understand why the bride buys her dress and the groom rents his tuck. That makes no sense to me. But I really don't understand why some people born with so much achieve so little. Some people born with so little achieve so much. When I was talking to people about the group I'm going to talk to, they said, you're talking to a very successful group of people that operate with a great deal of pressure. I understand that. But I'm going to make five assumptions about the people in this room. If I'm wrong on these assumptions, you please interrupt me. Number one, I'm going to assume you want to be happy in your personal life. Number two, I'm going to assume you want to be very successful in your professional life. 
Number three, I'm going to assume you want to feel needed by other people. Number four, I'm going to assume you want to be successful or you want to be secure about your future. And number five, I'm going to assume you want to go to heaven. Now, with those five assumptions, you want to be happy in your personal life, in your professional life, you want to be successful, you want to feel needed, you want to be secure about your future, and you want to make sure you go to heaven. Well, a lot of people have a lot of different philosophies. I don't. And something doesn't have to be long in order to get a message across. Do you realize that Gettysburg addressed with 300 words, and 200 words were single syllables? It doesn't have to be complicated. There are only five killers. Think of what Michelangelo did with those five killers. There's only seven music notes. Look what Beethoven did with them. So my philosophy is very, very simple. But it's one that I practice and one I believe and I promise you. You follow this simple philosophy, you check yourself once a month on these five areas. I guarantee you the five assumptions I made will enable you to be successful. And I'm talking about your personal life. I'm talking about your professional life. I'm talking about your future. I'm talking about your security. I'm talking about being needed. See, there's a key question we should always ask ourselves. If you didn't show up, who would miss you and why? If, if you didn't go home, would anybody miss you? And if they did, why? If you didn't go to work tomorrow, would anybody miss you and why? If your company ceased to exist, would anybody miss you and why? See, ladies and gentlemen, the only people we miss are those that add value to other people's lives. Now, I don't want to upset the airlines because I fly so much, but if American Airlines were out of business, you wouldn't miss them because you, you could go fly United and, and they'd be late and they'd be rude and lose your luggage. I mean, they're no different. Like guy said, I want this suitcase to go to New York. That went to Los Angeles. This went to Chicago. She said, oh, we can't do that. He said, you did it the last time I flew your airline. So, but the point I make, you wouldn't miss them because they're not unique. Now, if Disney went out of business, people would miss them. Why? It's different. It's unique. You can't duplicate it. There's only one like them. And when we talk about adding value to people's lives, and no matter what assumption I made out of those five, there's five areas you have to excel in. And they aren't complicated. The first was the attitude we have. What's your attitude? Your attitude, the attitude you choose is so important. And it starts with you and it works down. It doesn't start at the bottom work up. It starts with you. What's your attitude when you have adversity? Let me tell you what happened my first year at the University of South Carolina. My wife had her second major cancer surgery. She had 13 hours of surgery and 83 radiation treatments. Her weight went from 129 to 89. Now, I'm happy to report my wife's doing well now. I don't even pray for her anymore. I pray to her. I, I mean, she's a saint. But <laughs> my son, Skip, went into a coma the week we played Georgia. We almost lost him. My mother died the Friday before we played Florida. I was on a school airplane for three days recruiting. We landed at Lady Island Airport, and the pilot said, Coach, will you visit Darnell, Washington? We're going to fly 11 miles to Hilton Head to get gas, come back and get you. And then we were flying to New Jersey that evening. During that 11-mile flight, the school plane crashed. One pilot was killed instantly, the other seriously injured, who later died. We lost every football game we played that year. We went 0-11. 
And I had a kicker that said, I can't kick when you're watching. You know. You explain you are going to be at the games. That's part of the contract. Now, now we're on 11 that year, but records could be deceiving. We really weren't as good as our record would lead you to believe. And you talk about everybody bitching and moaning, nasty letters, nasty articles in the newspaper, nasty calling radio shows. He's too old. The game passed him by. Everybody's down on you. I'm in an airport after that first year. I'll never forget a guy come up and said, anybody tell you look like Lou Holtz? I said, yeah, they say I even sound like him too. He said, really makes you mad, doesn't it? <laughs> You're on the bottom, you've got two choices. You stay down or you pick yourself up. You can succeed when no one believes in you. You have no chance to succeed if you do not believe in yourself. And I can't begin to tell you. As desolate as everything seemed. No help, no support, no belief. But I can't begin to tell you how many times I had to give myself a pep talk before I walked into a staff meeting or a team meeting convinced that we kept alive our vision and we kept alive our plan of how we're going to get there. Twelve months later, South Carolina had the second greatest turnaround in the history of NCAA football. We went from the longest losing streak in the country to finish 17th in the country. We beat Ohio State in a bowl game. following year, we finished 11th in the country beat Ohio State again. The point I make, to get knocked down, to have everybody against you, is not unusual. It's going to happen to all of us. The question is, what's our attitude when we're going to be down? And when I, people talk about my background, and they slide over the fact I signed a five-year contract with the New York Jets. I turned the job down three different times. And finally, Al Ward, the general manager, said, well, you should come tell Mr. Hess and Mr. Islam, the two owners of the Jets, you do not want to coach. You ought to tell them face to face. So I flew to New York to tell them I did not want to coach the Jets. I called my wife at night. She said, you did what? I said, I'm the head coach of the Jets. She said, you went there to turn it down. I said, let's see what it's like. If it doesn't work out. We can always go back to intercollegiate athletes. Let's go see. I went there without a vision. I went there without a plan. I went there without being a leader. Let's hope this works out. Every time something went wrong, I didn't think this would work out. I didn't think this is what I wanted to do. And after signing a five-year contract, I stayed eight months and left. Now, quitting is a permanent solution to a temporary problem. And it bothers me today that Mr. Hiss, Mr. Ism put their faith in me and I let them down. But here's the reason I bring this up. The New York Jets won the best jobs in the world. And I was miserable, unhappy, and unsuccessful. Why? Because the attitude I approached. When I look at it back, say, how fortunate I was to have that opportunity and I blew it. See, so many times we look at the negative things about our job and we don't realize how lucky we are. We don't look at the great potential that your profession offers you. And, and it bothers me to this day, but I can't change that, but I bring it up. Because it goes back to the attitude that a leader is going to have. And I tell you what, you can change people's productivity by changing their attitude. I met a young man here graduated from Notre Dame at Class 89. He'll remember Steve Berline. I go to Notre Dame, as I mentioned, Miami had beaten them 58-7 to the last game in the preceding year. And Steve Berline played 16 years in the NFL as a quarterback. 
He was a three-year starter at Notre Dame. He owned all the passing records. And I sat down with him the very first week. Now, this is how Steve relates a conversation. I said, Steve, you own all the passing records. That's wonderful. I like a running quarterback. You aren't very fast, but that doesn't bother me. And he interrupted me, and he said, how slow do you think I am? I said, Steve, if you got to race with a pregnant mother, the best you'd finish would be third. You know. <laughs> I said, that's not what bothers me. What bothers me, you threw 17 interceptions as a junior. I said, son, I make this commitment to you. Your senior year, you will not throw seven interceptions. He got all excited and said, that's great. Is it the way you run around to read the coverages? I said, no, when you get to six, you ain't playing anymore. You know, it's not complicated. <laughs> it's amazing how his attitude changed. And have fun with whatever you do. Every day I walked out on the football field, the first thing I said is, boy, what a great day to work. I was so happy to be on the football field, whether I was or not. I wanted the players to know I was excited to be there, because if I'm excited to be there, they're going to be excited to be around. If you're enthused about what you're doing, people want to be a part of it. Doesn't mean you don't do dumb things. People say, do you have fun doing TV? Not really. I'm up there in Hartford, Connecticut. We have no teleprompter. We have no script. We have no rehearsal. And I'm up there, and we're 15 minutes from Hartford by telephone, and it's snowing. And I'm on there with a guy by the name of Mark May. Now, I want to tell you, Mark May's one of the smartest people I've ever been around, one of the classiest, a true professional. He studies, he knows his stuff, but we have a difference of opinion. He was a player as a coach. He made suggestions, I made decisions. He signed a paycheck on the back, I signed it on the front. He showered after work, I showered before work. You know, there was just a difference of philosophy. And I have a bumper sticker on my golf cart at Lake Noda. Everybody says, is that for Mark May? I said, no, I love Mark May. That's for my members at Lake Nona. The bumper sticker said, Jesus loves you. Everybody else thinks you're an asshole. <laughs> but when they turn that red light on, I'm going to have fun. Whether I have a headache, whether I'm going to have fun doing TV, because if I have fun doing TV, people have fun watching. Our ratings have gone out of sight. Because we have fun doing it. Doesn't mean I don't do dumb things. I met a guy from Auburn. He said, don't tell any Auburn stories. Well, this is the only one I'll tell. It's a true story. I got on TV one time called it University of Auburn. Well, the next week I had to get on TV and say, folks, I made a mistake. Uh, many of you wrote me and told me it's Auburn University, not University of Auburn. I'm a quick learner. I will not make that mistake again, so please don't write any longer. I got the message. I then turned to Reese Davis on national TV, and I said, Reese, I had no idea that many people from Auburn could write. Oh, you talk about the next <laughs> week. You talk about national. But have fun with what you do. And what's your attitude when people say negative things? I want to remind you, these stories are absolutely true. A few years ago, I'm at the University of Notre Dame. We're going to go to the Sugar Bowl, and we're going to play Florida, coached by Steve Spurrier. Great coach, great person. And they had a great football team, but we had a good team at Notre Dame, too, but we were an underdog. I felt we'd win the game, which we eventually did, but nobody else thought we would. And I sent our team home for two days to be with their family Christmas Eve and Christmas Day. To me, I thought that was important. You'd be with your family on Christmas. Well, during those two days, I brought my wife and my four children here to Orlando. And we have four children. They're all girls but two. Real proud of that fact. And 
We, we go out to dinner. I'm never happier than when I'm with my wife and my family. And I'm in a great mood. And the waiter came up and he recognized me. He said, you're Lou Holtz head coach of Notre Dame, are you? And I said, yes, sir. And I took out my pen thinking he won an autograph. He said, let me ask you a question. What's the difference between Notre Dame and Cheerios? I said, I don't have a clue. He said, Cheerios belong in a bowl, Notre Dame doesn't. Now, I'm rather competitive. I'm in the state of Florida. We're going to play Florida in the Sugar Bowl. I'm with my family, and he makes this comment, and it made me mad. I'm very competitive. And finally, my wife said, you're going to let somebody. You never met before. You're never going to see again. He doesn't care a thing about you. You're going to let him ruin this evening because something stupid he said. She said, you cannot let other people control your attitude. The more I thought about it, she's right. Why should I let somebody I never met before, never going to see again, doesn't like me, doesn't care about, why should he ruin that evening? Because something he said. You control your happiness. My whole attitude changed. And I felt so good a little bit later, I called the waiter back over and I said, son, let me ask you a question. I said, what's the difference between Lou Holtz and a golf pro? He said, I don't have a clue. I said, a golf pro gives tips, which he found out when the meal was over. Exactly what I meant. But we just have to make sure that the attitude is a choice we make. You know, what you're capable of doing is determined by the amount of talent God gave you. What you actually do is determined by your motivation. You may have great talent, but if you aren't motivated to do something, you aren't going to do it at all. But how well you do something is determined by your attitude. And, God, you know, you have the power to love and think and create and imagine to play in. The greatest power you have is the power to choose. And the attitude you choose on a daily basis is by far the most critical thing that you'll have to choose every single day. The first thing, make sure our attitude is we're going to have adversity, we're going to get up, we're going to lead, but other people aren't going to control it. Point number two, you have to have a passion to win. Now, I don't ask our athletes how many want to win. Everybody wants to win when the band's playing, the crowd's cheering, the TV lights are on. question I ask, can you live with losing? Can you live with failure? Can you live with mediocrity? See, ladies and gentlemen, my attitude is I firmly believe that there's no problem, no difficult, no obstacle going to keep me from accomplishing what I want to do. Difficult, doggone right. That's why so few people achieve their goals and objectives, because the minute gets difficult. So if you have a passion to win, you're going to do two things. I don't say, how many want to win? Yeah, I want to win. They tell me, do you do these two things? If you have a passion to win, it's going to be determined by the amount of sacrifice you and your family are willing to make. I could ask each and every one of you, get up here, talk about your success. And every one of you would have to talk about the problems and difficulties and obstacles you had to overcome in order to achieve that success. That's a sacrifice. Losers call that punishment. I've got to lift weights. That's punishment. Unless you want to win. Unless you want to succeed. Ladies and gentlemen, you show me a successful marriage. I'll show you people who have made sacrifices for one another. And I can't begin to tell you the sacrifices my family's had to make during my coaching profession. I couldn't be at the ball games. I couldn't be there when my daughter went to the formal. We couldn't join a bridge group. But that's just a sacrifice. Life's a trade-off. And, and if you have a passion to win, you're going to do those sacrifices willingly. 
Now, a few years ago, we're defending national champs at Notre Dame. In our first game, we opened up with to be at Ann Arbor in Michigan. I think it was like on September 12th. And when the players reported, I said, man, I know you're going to want to win on September 12th. But that's not when we win. When we win is the amount of preparation we make between now and then. We're allowed 29 practices like Michigan. No more, no less. Our practices have to be productive. Because if we're going to win, if you want to win, it's how hard you prepare. First couple of days were great. Then they got tired. They got sore. They got beat up. They got mad at me. I was pushing them too hard, and they rebelled. One day I walked out. We weren't getting any better. And I walked up, and I said, man, I know you're tired. So I called Bo Schembechler today, the coach at Michigan. I didn't call Bo, but I told him I did. I said, man, I called Bo, and I said, Bo, your players at Michigan tired? He said, yeah. I said, we're tired too, Bo. I tell you what, Bo, you give Michigan players day off, I'm giving Notre Dame players day off today. They started high five one another and cheering. I looked at him and I said, Bo said no. <laughs> Bo doesn't care how tired you are. He's going to practice two hours. Well, if we're going to beat Michigan, we have practice two and a half. Well, it took us three hours, but we had good practice because they focused what our purpose was and the sacrifice. It worked so well that day. I walked out the next day and said, hey, man, I called Bo today. And they looked at me real funny and said, what did Bo say? I said, Bo, your players beat up and sore. He said, yeah. I said, we are too, Bo. You practice Michigan in shorts, I'll practice Notre Dame in shorts. I said, man, you ain't going to believe this. Bo said, no. Bo said, he's going to scrimmage. I don't want to scrimmage. I feel your pain. But if we're going to beat Michigan, we have to scrimmage. And don't get mad at me, but you remember this when you say Bo on September 12th. That's guy doing, not me. I did it four straight days. I walked out the fifth day before I could say a word. One of our players said, hey, coach, I called Bo today. <laughs> I said, well, Bo said, he said, Bo said, his players eat steak and lobster. But, you know, it's just understanding. <laughs> it's understanding the sacrifices. That was a game Rocket Ishmael ran back two kickoffs to enable us to beat Michigan up there in our opening game. So there's going to be a sacrifice. And sacrifice also tells me, do you adhere to fundamentals? Ladies and gentlemen, I don't know what the fundamentals of your profession is. I don't profess to know. But I do know this. The great football teams are the ones that can block and tackle. Great students started out by learning how to read and write. Fundamentals anything you have to do on a daily basis to be successful. Fundamentals are the foundation that it has to be built on. People get confused. They, they don't like to do fundamentals. I, people say, what do you want on your tombstone? First thing I wanted to say, I told you I was sick. Now, if you aren't going to put that on there, put, he believed in fundamentals. Because I did. I learned that from Woody Hayes. I mean, we, we, we would practice a whole day without a football, just on blocking and tackling. And I, I just believe that. I would tell this story to the football players every year they reported first day. Time air seniors, they got bored with it, but I told it anyway. Guy walked into pet shop, wanted to buy a bird. Had all these birds for $1.98. The guy said, you don't want that bird? I got the ideal bird for you. This bird's only $412. The guy said, well, that bird looks like the other. He said, well, the difference is this bird talks and sings. They just sit there. The guy said, gee, that's a lot of money, but I'm all alone. He bought the bird, came in the next day, really mad, said, bird don't talk or sing. The guy said, what did he do when he rang the bell? He said, what bell? He said, didn't you buy the bell where the bird could get the proper tune? He said, no. He said, well, the bird's not going to talk or sing unless he can get the tune, and the bell's only $18. Guy buys the bell, come in the next day. 
Bird don't talk or sing, they rang the god dog bell. The guy said, that's impossible. I have the same type of bird as you. Why, just today, my bird got up and rang that little bell, ran up and down the ladder. The guy said, what ladder? He said, did you buy the ladder where the bird can exercise? I said, no. Bird ain't going to talk, sing, let's sing exercise. The ladder's only $22. Goes on four straight days. Every day, he sells them something different. Guy came in the fifth day, said, I have $519 invested in the bird. Today, the bird finally talked to me just before he died. Bird got up this morning, rang that little bell, ran up and down that ladder, swung on the swing, looked in the mirror, all the things you sold me. And just before he died, he looked over at me and said, didn't he sell you a bird seed? See, see, we get caught up in all the fancy things. We forget the fundamentals. And fundamentals are critical in any profession. The second thing. If you have a passion to win, you're going to get rid of excuses why you can't. People always have excuses. Oh, you can't do this, your economy, etc. Get rid of them. Several years ago, I was at the University of Arkansas, and all we had to do, all we had to do was beat SMU. We would go to the Orange Bowl. Arkansas had never been to the Orange Bowl. Not only that, we would play Oklahoma, which was number one at the time. And the last time Arkansas played Oklahoma was in the 20s. Oklahoma beat them 108 to nothing. So we're ahead 42-14 in the fourth quarter. Fans are throwing oranges on the field. Everybody's excited. The media said to me after, what did you think when the fans were throwing oranges on the field? I said, thank God we weren't going to the Gator Bowl. Yeah, you know, it was just an exciting time. <laughs> but then I had to suspend three athletes that scored 78% of our touchdowns. That wasn't my decision. See, as a leader, you don't make decisions that you aren't going to play. You say, here's a rule. If you choose to break this rule, you're choosing not to play. All you do is enforce other people's decisions. Remember I mentioned one of the important things of being a leader is hold people responsible and accountable for the choices they make. Did I want to do it? No. Did I want to jeopardize our chance to win and no? Did I want all the harassment that came with the decision? No. But that wasn't my decision. They chose not to play. And then they give me, oh, coach, please let me play. Because you chose to violate your rule, to violate your word, don't ask me to break mine. One of the stories I used in recruiting Jerome Bettis was he didn't want to come to Notre Dame because he thought that's too much of a disciplinary, but Jerome wasn't going to make the decision. See, when I go recruiting, all I want to know, who's going to make the decision? Well, they want. And I had to show them how we could help them get it better than anybody else can. And his mother was going to make the decision. She wanted academics and discipline. I said, Miss Bennett, it's like two guys got a puppy. Oh, the one guy loved that puppy, allowed that puppy to do anything he wanted. And everybody said, oh, how much he loves that puppy. Your guy got the same type of puppy, and the first thing he did was put a choke collar on the sucker. And every time the dog looked left or right, that choke collar grabbed Everybody said, how mean and nasty he is, that dog. A year later, the guy takes a choke collar off the dog. The dog runs the neighborhood. Everybody loves and enjoys it. Why? The dog knew what it could do, what it could not do, what the parameters were. The guy allowed the puppy to do anything he wanted. could never give it any freedom. So when I have rules, regulations, I also they understand the ramifications if they violate those rules. And one of them was you will not play in this game. Well, they took me to court. Now, the attorney general for Arkansas represented me because I was a state employee named Bill Clinton. Later became president. Did a marvelous job. Won the case. They would not play. 
He won the case, but I lost a football team. I had the most dispirited football team you've ever seen. We became the largest underdog there's ever been in a major bowl. And about four days before the game, I had a team meeting. Players came in, very negative, wouldn't talk to one another. And I said to them, I said, I understand why we can't win. Every day I read about the great players from Oklahoma going to play. Every day I read about the great players from Arkansas that are not going to play. But I've never read one positive comment about anybody in this room. So I know why we cannot win. I want you to tell me why we can. For a while, nobody said anything. And Charles Clay stood up and said, Coach, we have the number one defense in the country, which we did. He said, we aren't going to get beaten near as bad as everybody thinks. Well, it wasn't what I wanted, but <laughs> it was a step in the right direction. And then they pointed out we had a great competitor quarterback. We had a great offensive line. We had a great receiver. I wanted to say they had a great coach. That never came up. When they left the room, ladies and gentlemen, it was a completely different team. Why? They focused on what we had and stopped listening to everybody tell us what we did not have. And that football team was the largest underdog that's ever been in a major bowl four days later. Beat Oklahoma 31-6. to What people say was an upset, it wasn't an upset. It was a group of people looking at why we could do something. So if you have a pass to win, you're going to make sacrifice, you're going to hear the fundamentals, you're going to get rid of all the excuses why you can't. Ladies and gentlemen, I could talk for an hour on each one of these five points, but let me get to point number three. Focus on your purpose. What are you trying to do? What's your mandate? I had two mandates as a football coach. Graduate athletes and win, period. How do I graduate? How do I win? You have two mandates. Satisfy the customer or the client. Make a profit. That's all. How do we satisfy the customer? How do we make a profit? Not how do I run an office. Mine's not how do I put them in the pros, how do I get to know the alumni, how do I graduate, how do I win. Don't complicate life. Stay focused on what you're trying to do. I use common sense. Now this story is basically true, but this story I will embellish a little bit. In the seventh grade, I had a nun by the name of Sister Mary Harriet who disliked me. And probably with pretty good justification, because I was always saying things that irritated her. There was a time Catholics could not eat meat the entire year round. You had to eat fish. I do not like fish. So every Friday I'd complain to her, I wish the apostles had been ranchers rather than fishermen. I was convinced. <laughs> Somebody said, well, why didn't you become a vegetarian? Ladies and gentlemen, vegetarian is an old Indian word which stood for bad hunter. But in any event, I just... And then I asked her things during religion she couldn't answer. Why did Paul keep writing the Corinthians when they never wrote them back? You know, it made no sense to me. <laughs> One day we had a test. It was a large test. I finished for everybody else. And the reason I finished for everybody else because most of my paper was blank. And I didn't want to look at a blank paper, so I started looking around out of boredom. I was not trying to cheat, but she thought I was. She held in front of the whole class, Lou Holt. If I even suspect you of cheating, I'm taking 10% off your grade. I got out the textbook and said, 90 sounds good to me. So, you know, just use common sense. Now, if you're going to satisfy the needs of the client and make a profit, you have to have teamwork. There's no other way to do it. In South Carolina that first year after we were 0-11, it was about January, 
I said to the team, I want you to meet me in the stadium tonight at about 10.30. They came in there. They weren't very happy campers. And after we loosened them up, I brought out a huge rope. I said, give me the 15 strongest offense, the 15 strongest defense. Immediately we had a tug of war. The offense started to win, and pretty soon the defense did. They didn't have 15 anymore. Pretty soon they had the whole team involved in a tug of war. All the offense on one side, defense on the other. The offense won again. Yeah, 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 we won. I said, we cannot win when we pull against each other. I then sat him down in the middle of the field and talked to him some things about teamwork that applied to you as well. First point I made is we need each other. We need offense, defense, kick game. We need coaches. We need players. We need trainers. We need each other. There's all kinds of Hall of Fames. I've never seen a monument built to a team. But a team enables you to accomplish something that no individual can do regardless of how multi-talented they may be. The second point I want to make, we all have a role. Whatever our role is, we must do that role to the best of our ability so we don't jeopardize our goal. Our goal is to win. Your role is to cover kickoffs. And I expect you to do that so you don't jeopardize our goal winning. Oh, I don't want to cover kickoffs. I want to run the ball. I understand that, but you aren't going to. You're going to cover kickoffs because you cannot jeopardize our goal. Ladies and gentlemen, if you want to fail, you have the right to fail. Nobody has the right to cause somebody else to fail because you don't fulfill your obligation. You join a business. You join a team. You bring a child to the world. You join a spouse. You do not have the right to cause somebody else to fail. Because you don't do the role to the very best of your ability. The third point I made to him is the challenge escalates. The need for teamwork must elevate. The greater the competition, the greater the challenge, the greater the obstacle, the more important it is to work together. I was at Notre Dame, South Carolina. Who'd we play? I, I look at that schedule. Michigan and Texas and Tennessee and Alabama and Miami of Florida and Southern Cal. People say, how'd you sleep when you looked at that schedule? I said, like a baby. I woke up every two hours and cried. I said, oh, you know, <laughs> you don't need teamwork to fail. But if you're going to succeed, it's an absolutely sense. Point number four, the team must improve. There's three ways to improve the team. Number one, you had good people. You also can improve the team by deleting bad. Who are the bad? The ones that bitch and moan and complain and never have a positive suggestion. But the most important way a team improves, you should be better today than you were yesterday. You ought to learn something every single day and how to do your role better. So, ladies and gentlemen, I think that is absolutely critical. You, you look, don't tell say, who's going to win the championship? I don't know because I don't know who's going to improve the most. But every day, you should try to do your role better. That's why I feel a tremendous obligation with your time. The hours I gave you to speak and then the question answer. But you're here to improve. You want to do better. I have an obligation not to talk about something that just I read about, but things I believe. Because you're here to get better, and that's essential. And point number five, that everybody has to pull for one another. So many times people pull against one another, hoping that by pulling somebody else down, they'll look better by comparison. There's two types of people, those that lift others up and those that pull people down. We have coaches that lift PLAers up or pull down, teachers. We have spouses. 
I used to be insanely jealous of my wife. And in 52 years, never once did she give me reason to be jealous. of her. problem wasn't with my wife. Problems with me. I was so insecure at every time. We'd go to a cocktail party. She'd be talking to another man. He's better built, better looking, more intelligent. I think, why would she rather be with him than with me? Then I would unfairly criticize my wife trying to pull her self-confidence down till she'd reach a level where she thinks she was lucky to have me. See, ladies and gentlemen, we want to create an environment where we're lifting each other up. And the only way you can lift each other up is if you feel secure about your future and what you do and the manner you do it. Those are just a few of the points that I've made about teamwork that I believe strongly. The other thing is, if you're going to satisfy the needs of the client and make a profit, you're going to embrace change. You're going through a lot of changes now with the government, with red tape or tape and all. Embrace it. Don't make any changes for the sake of change. Don't say, well, let's try this. But make any changes you need. Say, what changes we have to make to satisfy the client and to make a profit? I'm the only coach that's ever won the national championship and the award for graduating 100% of his football team the same year. We moved our study hall from the classroom, where they felt like they were in jail, to the library. There's one way in, one way out. Where do the girls go study? The library. Where do the smart people go? The library. Where are the computers? The library. We moved to the library. Why did we make the change? So we could graduate our athletes better. Whatever change you have to make. But don't just say, well, let's try this. They tell me in 1878 they invented the typewriter. Probably the typewriter, if you type too fast, the key stuck. People said, we'll never sell a typewriter if the key sticks. They put together a committee to solve it. I came back and they said, we've got to solve this. They said, great. How would you get us to type faster? He said, we can't do that. He said, well, how are you going to keep the keys from sticking? He said, we're going to cause the people to type slower. I said, how are you going to do that? He said, we're going to hide the letters on the keypad. We'll put A up here. We'll put B down there. We'll put Q there. We'll put R there. And nobody's going to type fast. You're going to have to hunt. You're going to have to pack. Didn't you wonder why the letters on the keypad are screwed up? So you can't type fast. Now today, no matter how fast you take, the keys will, oh, don't change that, see, because I'm used to that. Ladies and gentlemen, make any change you have to to satisfy the client, make a profit. My time's rapidly running down, but let me get to point number four. You've got to be a dreamer. Martin Luther King made one of the ten greatest speeches in the history of mankind. Martin Luther King stood up in Washington, D.C. in front of hundreds of thousands of people. He said, I have a dream. Now, one man had a dream that changed this country for the better. Actually changed the world for the better. One man. Now, in all due respect to Martin Luther King, let me ask this. Do you think that speech would have had the same effect? And he stood up and said, I have a strategic plan I want to show you. I'm telling you, strategic plans don't excite people. Dreams do. Everybody needs four things in your life. If you have a void in your life, it's because you're lack of one of the four things. Everybody needs something to do. Everybody needs someone to love. Everybody needs someone to believe in. And everybody needs something to hope for. Having something to hope for is critical, and that's dreams. You've heard me tell the story when I went to South Carolina and was unemployed and a stay-at-home dad feeling dejected, depleted. I never had any goals. 
When I was a youngster, I wanted to be a garbage collector because they only worked on Tuesdays. I thought, that's a good deal. And I told my wife I want to be buried in Chicago. She said, we've never lived there. I said, I want to vote after I'm dead. But I, I think you have to have goals and you have to have dreams. And she bought me this book, The Magic of Think of Big. And one day when the children take a nap, I get out the book. And he talked about goals. He said, get out a paper and pencil. I got it out made five columns. Column number one was things I wanted to accomplish as a husband and as a father. And I want to tell you, my greatest achievement is not speaking, is not coaching, is not TV. My greatest accomplishment is my family. I'm so proud of my family, our children, our grandchildren, my wife. But the most important advice I ever got when our first child came along, the guy said, the most important thing you can do as a father is one thing. Always make sure that child knows how much you love their mother. More important than loving them. It gives them a sense of strength. I've never said a negative word to or about my wife in front of our children. The bedroom, that's a little different story. But in front of the children, no. Column number two, things I want to accomplish religiously. God's very important in my life, but I don't preach it and I don't lecture it. But I hope the way I live my life reflects the faith I have in God. As somebody once said, you can't take your money to heaven with you, but you can take your children. Column number three was things I wanted to accomplish financially. Column number four was things I wanted to do professionally. I wanted to coach at Notre Dame. I wanted to be a head coach. I wanted to win a national championship. I wanted to be in the Hall of Fame. Column number five was things I wanted to do for excitement. First thing I put down, I wanted to jump off an airplane. I was an officer in the Army. And I was at Fort Campbell. And I'd watch them jump out of an airplane. And, and I want to pause here and tell you I learned more in the military than I ever learned in a college classroom. And on June 3rd to June 10th, I will be in Afghanistan visiting with the troops. I've been to Iraq, Saudi Arabia, but I'll be going to Afghanistan June 3rd to June 10th. I had a football player say to me, I'm tired of everybody telling me what to do. I'm going to join the Marines. Oh, yeah, how'd that work out for you, son? But then I wanted to land on an aircraft carrier, and I wanted to jump out. I wanted to... Uh, I wanted to go whitewater rafting on the Snake River. I wanted to learn how to do magic. I wanted to be on the Today Show, Johnny Carson. I uh, wanted to make a home one. I wanted to go to the White House for dinner. I wanted to visit with the Pope. I wanted to go to Pompalona and run with the bulls with a slower person. And I, uh, <laughs> My wife came home. A true story. I had 107. I said, honey, we're going to do a moan. said, gee, that's great. Why don't we get a job? So we, we made it 108. Now there's 108, we have done 102. I've done everything I mentioned except run with the bulls, and my youngest son has done that. But no, here's the point. Don't go through life and be a spectator. Decide what you want to do. Remember the word win. What's important now? Decide what you want to do. Ask yourself 25 times a day, what's important now? And evaluate the past, focus on the future, tell you what you have to do in the present. Want to win a national championship? Wake up in the morning. What's important now? Get out of bed. What's important now? Eat breakfast. Need your strength. Go to class. Sit in the front row. You're in the weight room. What's important now to get stronger? Not because somebody's looking. You're out Saturday night and there's booze and drugs and sex and heroin. You want to win a championship? What's important now? You better eradicate yourself from that position. See, ladies and gentlemen, it's not complicated. Decide what you want to do. Remember the word win. And there are no age restrictions on having goals. I'm so old now, my birthday candles cost more than the cake, but that's not relevant. 
But don't make the mistake I made. I've done a, lot of, done a lot of dumb things. Let me tell you one thing I did I truly regret. We went to the University of Notre Dame. We took a program flat on the bottom. We took it to the very top. For ten straight years, we would end in November with a chance to win the national championship. For nine straight years, we went to a January 1 bowl, the sugar, the cotton, the orange, or the fiesta. Nobody's done it before. Nobody's done it since. We took that program off the top, and we maintained it. It's a thing I truly regret. There's a role of life that said you're either growing or you're dying. The tree's either growing or it's dying. So is grass. Has all to do, are you trying to get better? You're trying to maintain. We're on top, and every time, no matter what we did, it wasn't good enough. We finished second in the country. Everybody called me an idiot. Guy finishes last in medical school. They call him doctor. It doesn't seem big sense, but <laughs> you're on top, and you say, you know, this is pretty good. Let's not risk it. Let's not change anything. Let's maintain. We're on top. And the minute you try to maintain, you never have reason to celebrate. You have no enthusiasm. You never have new ideas. When I left the University of Notre Dame, I never thought I'd coach again. Where to go from Notre Dame, according to my mother, you go directly to heaven, you sit by the Pope. You don't coach anymore. And then I went to live in a town, the average age of deceased. And what I found out, I was not tired of coaching. I was tired of maintaining. And I say this to this very successful group. There's a strong tendency to say, well, let's just maintain it. This isn't a good time for us to make H.A. It isn't a good time for us to elevate the bar. And the minute you do that, something to hope for. When I try to maintain it, nothing to hope for. Just hope that things don't get worse. That's why dreams are so important. Let me get to point number five. How to make good choices. Wherever you are today are because of choices you make. Choose to do drugs, drop out of school, join a gang, get tattoos all over. You're choosing to have difficulty in life. Make good choices. And as a leader, all you have to do is get your people to make good choices. That's all. Now, how do we get them to make good choices? I'm going to give you three rules. That's all I ever had. And I want to tell you, we had federal laws, state laws, county laws, corporate laws, bylaws, in-laws, and outlaws. You only need three laws. And in the 40 years I've used these laws, I've never needed a fourth. And all the thousands of letters of people I've, have written me to talk about, they heard me speak, they adopted the philosophy and how it changed their life, not once has anybody said you need a fourth law. Just three laws. These are the only three laws I had for the athletes. If I was doing your profession, I wouldn't have any more than these three. Same three rules I had for my children. Rule number one, do right. Do what's right and avoid what's wrong. I think it's right to be honest. I think it's wrong to find a teammate's wallet before he lost it. It's called stealing, son. But just do the right thing. I, I think it's wrong to practice sexism, racism, spousal abuse. Just do the right thing. I think it's wrong to be bitter. We all have reason to be bitter. In a spouse, in a society, in a business. We've all had injustices done. You can't go through life being bitter about something that happened 20 years ago. You pass away, your spouse has to hire Paul Bearers because you don't have six friends. I go to the University of Arkansas. I'm there seven years. Seven bowl bids. 
Four top ten finishes unparalleled in Arkansas history. Best one-loss record in the history of Arkansas, the second best one-loss record in the Southwest Conference, only the Dare Royal. We graduate our athletes, we filled the stadium, we ran an honest program. And to show their appreciation for everything I did for Arkansas, they fired me and wouldn't give me a reason. Why? I was shocked. I was absolutely, it came out of the blue. I was so mad, I was so bitter, I wanted to go to the media. My wife said, no, we know what we did, we'll move on. And we did. I, 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 it hurt me because I wanted to blast them. Two years later, University of Notre Dame's looking for a head football coach. They called Frank Broyles, the guy that fired me. They said, we're looking at a lot of different coaches, but we wondered what happened to Lou Holtz. He said, I listened to somebody tell me something that wasn't true. Lou Holtz, the best football coach I've ever had. I'm trying to hire him back, which he was. He said, if you didn't hire Lou Holtz, don't even talk to anybody else. Go hire him. You'll never regret it. I end up at Notre Dame because of a guy that fired me at Arkansas. Because my wife wouldn't allow me to be better. I'm not saying you don't have a right to. I'm not saying you don't have a reason to. All I'm saying is that it hurts you in the long run. This is the only joke I tell. My wife gets bad when I tell her. Guy's in the hospital, 87 years of age. He said to his wife, I, thought, I remember when we first got married, I got fired from my first two jobs. And you're always there encouraging me. And then I joined the Army. You joined the nurse corps. She could be with me. And I remember when I got wounded, you're right there with me, encouraging me and support me. And after the service, I started five businesses. They all failed. You're always there encouraged me and support me. He said, here I am, 87 years of age. You're still in the hospital encouraging me. He said, I just want you to know I've come to the conclusion you're bad luck. You know, it's that mentality. It's always somebody else's fault. Rule number two, do everything to the very best of your ability. Not everybody can be All-American. Not everybody can be All-Conference. Not everybody can be first team. Everybody can be the best they're capable of being. That's all. Rule number three, show people you care. When you walk into a room, I don't want your attitude to be, hey, here I am, look at me, it's all about me. I want your attitude to be, there you are, how can I help you? Ladies and gentlemen, you'll never meet anybody again. There's nobody in this room that doesn't have a problem, doesn't need a kind word, doesn't need a smile, doesn't need encouragement. Those are the only three rules I need. Do the right thing. Do the best. Show people you care. Why are those the only three rules you need? Because everybody you meet in this world has three questions. Same three questions my wife asked about me. I ask about her children, athletes. The three universal questions that everybody asks mentally. Question number one, can I trust you? Ladies and gentlemen, if you do not have trust... You cannot have a relationship with people. My wife, I trust completely, and she can trust me. I would never. All the temptations may come along your life. It's not worth it if I lose the trust of my wife. Trust is critical. My first year at South Carolina, after we're all in 11, it was about June 8th. Five o'clock in the afternoon, I found out that two players, from the previous team were arrested for selling drugs. Now, they weren't on that team, but they were on last year's team. I had everybody in summer school. They ate dinner at 6. I said, I want a team meeting at 7. I was so mad. You know why I was mad? 
18 months I'd been in South Carolina and the players still did not trust me to tell me that was going on. That's what bothered me. They didn't trust me. I said, think of the embarrassment this university is going to have in tomorrow's paper. Why? Why didn't you trust me? Nobody said anything for a while. Then finally a sophomore, Jonathan Martin, got out. He said, Coach, I trust you. He said, I think this team trusts you. Looked around the rooms, a lot of my teammates, I don't trust you. Lie, you cheat, you steal, you do drugs, and you don't work hard. And Andre Goodman, who last year played with the Denver Broncos, got up, said, I agree with him. I go shower, I got locked in the locker. What was obvious to me then was there wasn't a trust on the team. Why? Because they knew there were a lot of players on that team that were not doing the right thing. I also knew there were a lot of players on that team that weren't doing everything to the best of their ability, and there were a lot of people on that team that didn't care about each other. So I had the manager give me a sheet of paper. I hadn't planned it. I said, I want you to write down everything you did you regret. Be confidential. Come back tomorrow, 2 o'clock, when summer school ends. 2 o'clock, I come into the meeting. I said, follow me. We went out to the practice field at South Carolina. Now, South Carolina had tradition. Every time they won a big game on the road, they put a little tombstone. Had the date to name the score of the opponent. It wasn't a very big graveyard or just a couple of them there. <laughs> that morning, I had a tombstone delivered this big blank. We dug a hole, put every one of those papers in. We burned it up, covered up dirt, and put the tombstone on it. And it stayed there the entire time I was there. And we made an agreement. If we had a teammate that we could not trust, that didn't do the right thing, if we had a teammate that wasn't totally committed to excellence and do everything the best of his ability, if we had a teammate that didn't care, they would rectify the situation and they would come to me. But no longer were we going to be the laughingstock of the country. Six months later, South Carolina had the second greatest turnaround. That's why it's so important to insist that everybody in the organization does the right thing so they can trust one another. The second question everybody asks, are you committed to excellence? Oh, you can have all the slogans you want. First will be best, then will be first. You send a message whether you're committed to excellence by the standard you have. One thing I learned from Woody Hayes, your obligation as a leader is not to be well-liked, not to be popular. Your obligation is to make them the very best they can be, and that can only happen when you have standards. And because of different talents and abilities people have, the only standard everybody's capable of achieving is doing everything to the best of your ability. In Notre Dame, we're ahead of Stanford, 16-0, coached by Bill Walsh, and we lost the game, a game we should have never lost. I was devastated. You know why we lost the game after I came to the conclusion? I became too lenient. I started, I started making excuses for him. Well, maybe he didn't feel good today, or maybe this, or maybe he's got a test, instead of having a standard. And I went out to practice on Monday, and I said, Ma'am, I've done you a disservice. I've lowered the standard, but I ain't doing any more. I'm raising that standard, and if I'm murdered, the police won't even investigate it, because you'll all be a suspect. We were not practicing that day. We had a physical practice. Had an All-American guard, Aaron Taylor, who was injured. And in his place was second-string left guard. Didn't take very long into practice to realize second-string left guard was just going through the motions. And I stopped practice. I said, what gives you the right to cause your teammates to fail? 
The other ten guys are breaking their heart with nothing to show for because his man made every play. I don't know. I said, go stand on the sideline and think about it. Third string left guard jumped in. I said, no. I'm so mad. I said, we're going to play as ten. We broke the huddle and defense said, well, we do act like we have one. Rick Meyer takes the ball, gives the ball to Reggie Brooks, our tailback. Oliver Gibson comes through the vacant area, hits Reggie Brooks. As soon as he gets the ball, it's a tremendous thud. Moment of silence, Reggie started moaning, couldn't see. Scares you. Turned his helmet around, he was fine. Get back to the huddle. <laughs> Ran another play, same result. Third play at open rebellion. I said, what's wrong? What's wrong? We don't have left guard. I said, when did you notice? I said, three, three plays ago. I said, we haven't had one all day. I'm tired of impersonators. I'm tired of imposters. I said, last week, we played with eight players and three imposters. I'd rather played with eight. Oh, we would have lost. But everybody would have said, wow, if we had 11 like them, nobody would beat us. We never lost again for our next 17 straight games. The last five games that year, we played in five nationally ranked teams. Our average margin of victory was 17 points. The obligation we have to do everything to the best of our ability. And the last question everybody asked, do you care about me? My wife doesn't do interviews. She'd done one interview in her entire life. That was on TV because it had to do with cancer. And I asked my wife, what did you learn from having cancer? She said, I learned how much my family loved me. Ladies and gentlemen, we didn't love her anymore. We showed it. Why did she have to go through cancer before we showed her how important she was in our lives? We have a tendency to take moms for granted and everybody else for granted. That's why those three rules, do the right thing, do the best you can, show people you care. Because that will create a situation where you can trust them and they're committed and they care. Take two people. Take somebody you love and admire and respect. Take somebody you got a problem with. I guarantee you, put these three questions on them. Can you trust them, yes or no? Are they committed to excellence, yes or no? they care about you? Person you admire and respect, I guarantee you'll say yes to all three questions. Person you've got a problem with, you will definitely pinpoint the problem. Either you can't trust them, they aren't committed, or they don't care. Now, did everybody honor those three rules? No. In Notre Dame, there's a statue of me at Gate 4, Lou Holtz Gate. I guess they need a place for the pigeons to land. I don't know. But if you go there, you look at the statue. Don't look at the statue. Look at the pedestal. There's three words on that pedestal. Trust, commitment, love. I didn't put them there. Notre Dame and the players put them there because those were our core values. And when somebody violated them, I'd sit down with them. I'd say, Jim, I don't believe you're doing the best you can in Spanish 2. Here's why. Got an A in Spanish 1, you're getting a D in Spanish 2, you missed class three times, study all twice, tutor once. I don't believe that's the best you can do, and I want to know why. I did not attack the performer, but I attacked the performance. Never attack the performer, but always attack the performance. By having those three rules and putting it that way, I don't believe that's the best you can do, or I don't think that's the right way to treat people. It never got personal. Remember this, when people need love and understanding the most, is usually when they deserve it the least. But by having those three rules, I felt I was able to provide the leadership and be fair and raise a standard and have a vision, have a plan. But I can tell you this, the most critical thing when you deal with people are those three rules. And when I stood up here, I knew 10% of you wouldn't remember 10% of what I said, but... 
I've already spoken for 63 minutes, I guess, which is a little bit longer than they wanted me to, but I, I, I just talked about things I believe. The attitude we have, the passion to win, sacrifice, get rid of excuses. Stand focused on your purpose. And you have to work together and embrace any change, but keep your mandates in front of you. And I also want to say this. When I went recruiting, I don't care where I was, I felt that I was doing that in an individual favor by coming to our school. If I said William Mary recruiting against Notre Dame, I actually convinced myself he would be better off if he came to us. You've got to believe in what you're doing. You've got to believe that you're going to be better for the people in the long run and that you're doing them a favor. You're not asking for a handout. You're not asking for a And when you get a rejection, it's because they don't quite understand how you're trying to help them. Ladies and gentlemen, you're not asking for anything. You're trying to help people accomplish whatever they want. Boy, what a great morale that is. I also want to say this about being in a leadership role. You not only have a chance to be successful, you have a chance to be significant. What's the difference when you're successful? You make a lot of money, you die at ends. Your significance when you help other people be successful, and that's what a leader does. Your leader is to help them be the very best they can be, and that lasts many a lifetime. I've already spoken too long. We only have a few minutes. I guess we're going to have a question and answer. I, I love to have a question and answer. I'll tell you why I usually don't. People don't ask questions. They say, well, I don't want to ask that question. That's a dumb, stupid question. I just say this, whatever question you might have, I'd be... No, I, yeah, I just, whatever. Yeah. So, right. Oh, thank you. Awesome, Luke. Thank you. <laughs> That's a... Uh, Look at these young, shiny you. faces. I, uh... I, uh, wow. I tell you, this works better than me sitting and you standing. I like it, don't you? <laughs> no, I, but I say there's no such thing as dumb super questions. I love to answer a question. Who has a cool. question? Lou, who's your favorite player? I'd like to apologize. That's a dumb, stupid question. Come I, on. Uh, how many children do you have? I have two. Which one's your favorite? Neither. <laughs> you got it, right? Every player. Every player is completely different. Uh, they all, I, I you don't have fondest memories about one player who worked hard or some Rudy that played on your team? or. Oh, I, I had a lot of Rudys. I tell you, I had a lot of Rudys uh, that went on to become doctors and lawyers, etc. But one of my favorite uh, was an Afro-American football player that came here and walked on. Uh, just a great young man. He was a fullback, but he always went the wrong way. Now, here's a guy in medical school. Always went the wrong way. And I said to him, I said, you're so smart. I'm going to have to put a stick in your hand. We call the play to the stick and away from the stick. And I said, you know, someday I'm going to be retired and I'm going to pick up the paper and I'm going to read where Dr. Thorne cut off the wrong leg. He said, every time he goes into surgery, he thinks about that about right. And I'll tell you, the greatest achievement of my life is the players that played for me at 11 years at Notre Dame have started a club called Lose Lads. And they didn't all play on the same team, but they all were there for 11 years. They all had the same philosophy, the same rules, et cetera. And those five assumptions, those rules will take care of it. And they get together at least once a year, and they tell Lou Holt stories and go back, and they come back to Notre Dame. They have raised over $500,000 for scholarships to Notre Dame 
for former football players' children. We've wow. had two players die, and they have put together a fundraiser to help those families financially. This is the love and the caring. You want to know why we want Notre Dame? Not because of me, because there was a love and a feeling, a caring and a trust and a commitment and a genuine caring. It, it's not complicated. I, I don't know why more people don't see it. And when I told you it was in the lower third of my class, I, I made that as a point because it doesn't have to be complicated to be effective. Cool. Pretty simple, isn't it, life? Not complicated. I got to tell you, it makes, it makes me laugh. A lot of people mess it up. You feel like taking a couple questions? Yeah. I'd... All right, get a mic. Go ahead. What do you got, Frank? Thanks, Coach. Uh, how do you approach motivating and inspiring your team at halftime, both when you're winning versus when you're losing? Okay, the thing about it at halftime, if things aren't going well, you never want to get on them. Uh, the time to get on them is at practice. And if they aren't doing well... You just encourage them. But sometimes when we're way behind, which wasn't very often. As a matter of fact, I cannot recall a big game that would then go down to the wire that I coached at Notre Dame or Arkansas. You just can't recall it or it didn't happen? Pardon? You just can't recall it or it didn't happen? I, I don't believe it happened. Okay, I, I believe that. I, I, I really don't. But the point I make is one time we're playing Baylor, and I'm at Arkansas, and Bob Hope is a friend of mine doing homecoming, and, and we're, we're down 28 to nothing at halftime. Wow. And I mean it's homecoming. The fans are, oh. Uh, we're undefeated at the time. We couldn't at halftime, and this is my philosophy when you're in behind. I said, man, let me tell you something. We average 31 points a game, and we have none. Now, we have a half. If we just do what we're supposed to do, we should be able to get 17. That's not unrealistic. 17. The kicking game, I really expect for you to create a touchdown. Either run back a punt, block a punt. All I'm asking you to do is give me one touchdown. Defense, I think it would only be fair for you to set up a touchdown. I, I mean, intercept a pass, pick up a punt. Now, if the defense scores one touchdown, if the kick game scores one touchdown, if the offense does their normal thing you've been doing all year, we win the game. I broke it down where it didn't seem like it was such a big obstacle. You do this, you do this, you do We came back, we won the game. Biggest. Wow. Yeah, we came back and won the game something like 37, 31 or something like that. I think that. sometimes we all got to break it down to its simplest barrier because it seems so overwhelming. But you got to break that down. If we do this and you do this and you do this, then it doesn't seem to be so insurmountable. When you just look at that scoreboard and go, wow, because you ain't going to score 28 points. I use eight for emphasis, not to illustrate the caliber of education I had at Kent State. But you break it down where it seems to be workable. Cool. Well, I want to give it up to Coach. Coach, thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you very much, Buck. You've been listening to the Corps Sales Training Boot Camp. For registration information about our two-day business building summits, call 1-800-660-6670 or find us on the web at www.thecorestraining.com.